Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tourists from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. Home's the right place. Seems like a good time to take a little pause and uh, spend some time around those that maybe not even necessarily just for you, but also to make other people bring comfort to them. I want it to be a positive experience. I want to share it as a positive experience. So I need to re-energize to be able to do that because I'm not observing like uh, my mind has been going crazy as I've been traveling. You see so much, you, you know, cause you, you cycle and you see so much and you're exposed to so much. What a fantastic experience. And uh, I, I really want to ensure that is the theme really. So I just need to go home and get recharge the batteries. No, I'm still really keen to, to see the rest of the world. My end of summer, I'm, I'm going between the northern and southern hemispheres to stay in the sun, basically. And, and, and while I get the chance to say this, I've passed so many hours listening to, to your podcast. Fantastic. Keep it up. It's a good job. Before rolling into this podcast with Ian Finley, I would like to take a moment to thank my newest patron, Sean Barna. Sean has signed up on Patreon.com as a monthly sponsor, and I just want to take a moment to thank him. Now, one of my benefits of being a patron is to get to ask me questions that I will answer on a podcast. And Sean has asked if all the hype about Brooks Saddles is worth investing in a Brooks Saddle. Now, he's had some stores tell him that it's a outdated technology and the new style saddles are so much better. And I think that it's a yes and a no answer. Yes, Brooks do take care and maintenance. You just can't ride them in pouring rain every day and expect them to last. Because they're leather, they will stretch. But because they're leather, they're also really comfortable when you're sitting on them. So once you get that seat positioned right, I mean, so many people tour with a Brooks for a reason. I feel that Brooks saddles are really good for touring bikes. I even know of people doing ultra endurance racing where transcontinental and races like that with brook seats, leather ones or cloth ones, and people have faith in it. So I think as long as your handlebars and your seat are relatively close in height, so you don't have to lean forward too much, then you're not going to have issues. Currently, I have my Brooks saddle on my road bike. I did this for the winter so I could just get more time on the saddle and help break it in. 
But because it's a road bike, the handlebars are quite low. And even when I'm on my aero bars, there's a lot of pressure on the front of me. So I have to be very careful the way I sit so I don't cause uh, undue pain. And a lot of times I'll be riding the bike and I just put my hands on the arm pads instead of the handlebars, just so it keeps me up a little bit more upright, giving me a more relaxed posture. And in those situations, the Brooks is working great. Now I'm looking forward to getting my newer bike because it will be an endurance road bike and the setup will be, or the the geometry will be a little bit more relaxed and I'll really be able to have a chance to see if the Brooks is holding up to to what I expect. A normal touring bike, if you're planning to do a lot of off-road stuff where you're going to be bouncing around, you might not want that front of that saddle sticking up so high. Otherwise, it could end up uh, somewhere you don't want it. So, Sean, hope that helped. And um, feel free to reach out if there's any more questions. Bye-bye. In this episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I have the chance to speak with 53 years young Ian Finley. In August of 2018, he loaded up his bike with everything he would need to finally take his gap year and cycle around the world. Old enough to appreciate it and young enough to do it by bike. Within a few weeks, the tour grew from a few months to two years. Having never cycled toured, filmed, photographed, or blogged, Ian decided he would learn as he goes, and through these media, he would share his endless summer. Ian, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. So, as usual, let's start off by just um, having you tell people about yourself. Okay, yeah. So, uh, I've been a road cyclist for, for many years. Not not particularly fast or, or good because I'm too tall and a little bit heavy, but I've been passionate about cycling for a, mm-hmm. a long time. Uh, used, used to uh, run a charity. There was three of us that would uh, try and encourage non-cyclists to uh, join us on a 150-mile, I don't know what that is in kilometers, 150-mile uh, ride. and something <laughs> 230 yeah. or so yeah. i can go kilometers to miles but not miles to kilometers so um we'd encourage people who hadn't cycled before to ride from uh, our town in uh, whitehaven to the other side of the country in a day um so about 150 miles and in the last year we we raised uh, ten thousand pounds in that in that day just for doing that so wow. when i decided it's, <laughs> there's all sorts of components to why mm-hmm. i started cycling around the world but I decided I would do it for me. I've done the charity stuff. There's obligations there. This is just for my own, yeah, my own well-being. Okay. So I kind of taken inspiration from, um, you know, like Sir Mark Beaumont, Sean Conway, uh, Alistair Humphreys. I think I think mm-hmm. I've heard you talk of Alistair. Read their books. Uh, I saw them give talks uh, in my local town of Keswick the week before. It was actually the seven days before I was due to leave. Oh, cool. And. Um, Everything just fell into place. It was just, the timing was perfect. Mm-hmm. So Alice is there and uh, stood in front. He's giving his talk, and he said, uh, "Hey guys, here's what you can do." So for those that you don't know, Alistair Humphreys is an adventurer, and he wants to encourage that. Uh, uh, you know, micro adventures. And um, so he's saying, "You know what? You can sell your house, quit your job, buy a bike, just go and cycle the world." So <laughs> I put my hand up. <laughs> I said, Alistair, I'm doing that next week. No, 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 no. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> but um, so I take inspiration from, from these guys and, and here I am. And I've not regretted one moment. Amazing. Uh, 18, 19 months in now. And yeah. where, you said you're from Keswick. Where is that in the UK? Uh, it's it's the heart of the Lake District in the north, okay. um, north of England. So on the border with Scotland, almost. Mm-hmm. A very nice part of the country. It's actually yeah. like a small version of New Zealand. Oh, okay. In that sense, it's very beautiful. Yeah. Nice. Because I always said like New Zealand is like a small version of Canada. So, and then like Lake District, England is (laughs) like the small version of (laughs) New Zealand. So I've got to visit Canada then, haven't I? Yeah. (laughs) That was actually my plan. I don't know whether you'd seen that post. I I, did see it. I planned to 
go to Calgary and then go across the Rockies and spend a bit of time there. But then yeah, I'm so detached from the media um, deliberately because mm-hmm. uh, I'm just enjoying the, the little bubble I'm in. Uh, and as I start looking, you know, okay, I need to consider flights and things for a number of weeks' time. And they're like, okay, yeah, this virus is getting a hold. So yeah. hence, you know, the last couple of weeks I've, I've concluded, okay, home is where the heart is. Yeah. What did you do before um, before the tour? Was it just the, the tour, the, just a charity, or that was just a side gig? Just a thing you did? That was no, that was the that was just a passion for cycling. Okay. That was something that the two or three of us did. Um, I just found great enjoyment in encouraging other people to get on bikes. Mm-hmm. Really, that was a really, really, really good experience. No, I was uh, a process engineer, so it was all about uh, making processes quicker, cheaper. But I'd been in the same place for twenty something years, and it became very much samey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I hit 50. Uh, I had a, sadly a relationship that was ending and a house that was selling. And what could have been, you know, a, a dark moment, obviously the relationship it was, wasn't very pleasant. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm, I'm taking inspiration from these guys, Mark Beaumont. I'm reading a book about, I was reading a book about a guy who cycled from London to uh, right, right through Europe. Uh, and then I saw an opportunity, I could go on a course to convert um, vans into camper vans. Um, so I went on the course, I found it enjoyable and easy. And I thought, okay, there's my there's my way out of oh, wow. the corporate background. Mm-hmm. So over a period of two or three months, there was these things pulling me and attracting me to, to travel and uh, an opportunity to leave work and actually do that. And I, this, that period was amazing. The freedom that I realized after, you know, being a father and, and previously married and mm-hmm. so, yeah, the, that, the freedom was, um, that, that feeling was fantastic. Um, so I thought, well, before I start the new business, why don't I uh, go for a bike ride and treat myself to a trip around Europe, just as I'm reading? Yeah. And uh, hey, it just grew. So it actually grew. I knew I was cycling around the world before I left home. Um, I, I might have forgotten to tell my mother at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, she. I was. I was at my mother's for tea, and she uh, she came with a put plate on the table, and she said, um, "Somebody, somebody tells me you're cycling around the world." And I looked and went, oh, yeah, sorry, Mom, <laughs> I forgot to tell you. <laughs> and she said, she said, do it. Just go. Oh, nice. It was amazing. It was. It was fantastic. So That's pretty neat. I've, uh, I've recently actually had a few people that are in their 50s and that are interested in touring. And they've reached out asking if they're too old to tour. And, of course, I say to them, no. Um, what do you think about oh, it? No. And can you offer some words of advice that these guys could um, could take some, maybe some motivation and stuff from you? Yeah. Um, so in the, in the six months that I spent preparing and, and researching, I've never toured before myself. Uh, I've never cycled and then slept in a tent before. Mm-hmm. Uh, until three three weeks before, by which time I'd already left work and, and uh, resigned. So in that six months of preparation, I stopped cycling and I put so much weight on. I think I put on, uh, you know, 10 kilos, something like that, because I was being fed like a king. Mm-hmm. And um, I was I was then at my mum's house for, for three months, ah. um, which turned out to be a lovely experience. We got so close as a result of of that it's strange circumstances, but hey, it was that was that was good. So when you when you travel like this, I honestly believe that you stop aging because all the time, even though you're just thinking about simple things, where am I sleeping tonight, tomorrow, where do I get water from? You know, in some of the scarier places, you're thinking all the time just about kind of simple survival, and and you meet so many people. Yeah, you, you don't age. I'm honestly getting mm. younger. Do you feel I don't that? Feel I'm fitter now than ever been. My legs just go on and on and on. My mind hasn't caught up with the rate at which the legs just carry on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I'm still thinking, oh, 100 kilometers, I really haven't got it. I don't want to do it tomorrow. It's too hilly. And no. So age, age isn't a factor. As long as you've got your health, then uh, honestly, I'm, I'm younger now than, yeah. It's pretty interesting because like I had um, Walter on my episode. He was like 70 years old. He cycled across Canada and I uh, saw an old guy walking into Best Buy, you know, and he's got two canes and he's barely hobbling. And I'm thinking, man, if this guy just got on a bike, even if it had three wheels just to help support yeah. him and he rode yeah. a little bit every yeah. day, man, this guy would, he would, next thing you know, he'd be, he'd be out jogging, you know, like. You know what's really good? Uh, I'm in New Zealand at the moment. This is my last day in New Zealand, but since I arrived here, there's so many older people. I'm in easily, easily well into retirement mm-hmm. on electric bikes. Right. And, um, you know, it's it's great to see them out. They're getting fresh air and going for a coffee and uh, um, the, the rail trails that they've got here as well. It's really popular. It's a really good thing. The, the, yeah. When I left home, the electric bikes had a stigma with them, but no. People keep, people often point at the, the, I've got a roll-off hub on the back wheel. Yeah. And they'll say, hey, is that, is that the motor? <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, you point to your legs. No. Those are the motors. <laughs> <laughs> this is This is where it all comes from, yeah. Yeah, no, the uh, the electric bikes are the wave of the future. Never too old, yeah. You know, and it's not to say like, oh, I need an electric bike so I don't have to pedal. It's just when you hit a big hill and if you want to turn up the juice a bit just to help you maintain a yeah. bit of good cadence and stuff, you put 10, 20% on, good, good for you, you know, you're, yeah. you're still doing the work. You're just Absolutely. having it assisted a bit, you know, or maybe you're riding with somebody I, I, who's too fast for you and uh, it's just, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. I, I think whether it's cool or not, you could st- you could tour on bikes in mm-hmm. places like New Zealand. The, the biggest distance you're going to cover without seeing anywhere is, is maybe, um, say, 70 kilometers. So I, I'm not sure what the range of the bikes are, but yeah. I think what, what, what needs to happen is comp- somebody needs to start a business that um, – that has locations in different countries where they have a various assortment of battery packs for your bikes because you can't fly with the lithium batteries. You can't fly them, yeah. So if there's a company there and they've got a supply of them, possible business idea. Anybody listening? This is a great one. I just came up with it. Um, people who just fly in, they rent the battery and they go. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I met uh, a lady it was, it was one of those moments where I was on a really quiet road heading to, oh, it's in Tasmania, I think it was. And it's really hilly there. Goodness me. And um, I'm on this road in the middle of nowhere. And I met, the, met this old lady going the other direction, just stood there. And I thought, will she feel intimidated by my by me approaching? But she stopped me and she wanted to talk. Where are you going? Tell me, you know, looking at the mm-hmm. bike. And she was on an e-bike. And she said, well, come on, I'll show you the best way into town. I was I was going to Queenstown actually, which is nice yeah, um, up in the mountains. on the South Island. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. She's not, I, I, let me take on the back roads. My legs were screaming trying to keep up with her, but um, <laughs> every time we came to the hills, she said, I'll, "I'll wait at the top for you." But um, yeah, it was she was eighty, I guess. No kidding, but, huh? you know, bright as a button. Really, really nice. It meets some amazing you, people. What do you think some of the advantages of bike touring later in life are as opposed to doing it just as a young person? You know, And I'm not saying you're later in life, but you know, as opposed yeah, to being no, 20. No, no, no. Well, I kind of, yes, I've met people fairly recently, the similar age to me or older than me. But where you meet the most people is, um, for me, it was through the Central Asian bit, the Silk Road, so from mm-hmm. Turkey onwards. And I've spent time on the road with people uh, as young as, um, well, 21. Mm-hmm. So 21 to 30 is probably the the the, uh, the guys that are doing the big tours, you know, half, half from, from Europe to yeah. New Zealand or, or Bali or wherever. So, yeah, I felt an old guy in that respect, but, well, no, I haven't actually. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know what to say, really. I forgot what the what question are the advantages? was. <laughs> what's, what's the good parts of a travel? The advantages yeah. are, yes, that, that I've had 
this many years and realized that what it is that makes me happy now and mm. being on this journey is absolutely that i didn't have the the nose to 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 leave one in my 20s and do mm-hmm. this because yeah. i didn't know i wanted to do that i i thought i would you know i do i do what everyone does you get married you work hard you buy a car you la, da, da, da. but looking back i realized that the more that you invest at home the more you're kind of trapped in that environment i wouldn't change anything because i've got the two best boys that I could ever wish for. So I wouldn't change that. But at the same time, I've got a great appreciation of what I'm doing. Um, And I I realize I'm in a privileged position to do that. Yeah. How did your friends and family... Go ahead. Oh, uh, friends. friends I was going to say, how how did they they take take it? it Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Some friends stopped talking to me. No kidding. I thought I'd gone slightly mad. No, yeah. Um, (laughs) So... I would announce to people at work um, occasionally. So this, it, 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 it sort of t- it was a tipping point. I don't know exactly when it was, but mm-hmm. I would say to people, "Yeah, I'm thinking of resigning." I was in a well-paid job, I had a pension lined up, and everyone just went to work to earn more money. And uh, and they look at me, okay, what the heck's he? You know, why is he doing this? Where, where's the pension going to go? And, and what's the salary? And so I got some strange responses off some people sometimes, mm-hmm. but the family were really supportive from. Uh, from day one you know assuming I actually tell them the whole story of course but yeah. um, very supportive uh, and then it got to the point as, as I'm doing my research and it became a matter of fact I'm doing this the way I, I relate it to people and I told them I'm doing then you know it, 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 people go hey I, I respect that That's a, you, you're doing the right thing it's it's a good thing I'm jealous <laughs> the amount of time guys said oh I can't do that I'm married <laughs> I said, whoops <laughs> I'll keep that to myself so by the time I left, everything was great. You know, back on yeah. with friends and everything was fine. Yeah, it was good. But I learned um, that I had so much belief in th- this trip and the way that I relayed that to people made a difference on their response as well. Okay. So, yeah. And I've got a great, in that respect, I've got a great number of people from back at work there following the journey. And it's really nice to, to get their comments back. Nice. Um, so, you mentioned you have a Rollhof. Uh, what kind of bike are you using for this tour? Uh, I went a little crazy. Uh, I had a Koga built in uh, in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. So it's got a uh, belt drive, the Rollhof hub, disc brakes, 28-inch wheels. What else has it got? It's got a Dynamo, which actually I've stopped using. It powers the lights, but it's I'm not going fast enough to, to charge anything with that. So oh, okay. I've got a, a solar panel for, for, the, for the warmer countries. Mm-hmm. So I've carried it through Australia and New Zealand for five months and never had to use it because there's so many places where you can charge. So, yeah, I'm carrying quite a bit too much, really, in, in a lot of tourists. <laughs> Maybe but when you go hey, home, it's a home. chance to readjust. Uh, yeah, it'll be my third time of readjusting. And this time, because of the hills that I've encountered here and uh, Tasmania, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get rid of some stuff, yeah. some more stuff. And are you thinking about changing, the, changing the, the size of the little sprocket on the, the front or back for your Rollhof? <laughs> I have done that when I was in Greece because Greece, I found Greece, uh, the, the route I took through Greece, mm-hmm. um, quite hilly as well. Okay. And I worked out that I could change the, the, the sprockets on the, on yeah. the, the sprocket on the rear, uh, and give me a lower range of gears, which I've done. And it was definitely worth, worth doing. Yeah. The bike was geared for, strangely enough, it was geared for city riding rather than carrying heavy loads. So a bit disappointing. But yeah. So I've got a good range, low range now. If I had any lower, I'd fall off, to be honest. Okay. So, so you come from a road biking background. So do you use clipping pedals or clipping shoes? I, 
I do. Yeah. yeah. I still have my SPD moments. I, I had a fall in, um, I was pretty much stationary. Yeah. I put, I unclicked my left foot to, to get out of the pedals and, and to, to stop and then fell to the right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's still, still having those moments, but mm-hmm. um, I just think I can, my feet feel safer on the pedals. Yeah. And I feel as though I can, I can push that a bit harder as well. Yeah. I'm the same way. I, I don't like the fact that my feet can move around when I'm not clipped in. Like I don't find it comfortable yeah. when all of a sudden I feel the pedals in the middle of my foot. For me, it's not a, yeah. a, something I, I don't like it, but um, I think for a lot of people, I guess it doesn't really matter to them. I rode from uh, uh, from home to the first thousand kilometers anyway, wearing sandals because it just felt, you know, free and mm-hmm. that's, that's what everyone else did. And and then it was in Belgium, I think it was, and it was cold. So I thought, oh, I'm going to put my these one kilogram shoes that I'm carrying with me. I'm going to put them on. And uh, yeah, there was so much better for power transfer and mm-hmm. for, for getting speed. So yeah. I've never looked back since. And what kind of handlebars do you have on your Koga? Is there are they drop bars or flat bars or specialized type things? They're flat bars, mm-hmm. uh, and I had um, the short ergo bars on the end as well. I've just changed those because I'm developing a bit of a sore thumb on the, on the left hand on the oh, pressure okay. point. When I was in uh, Nelson a few weeks ago, I got these bars that they're, they're ergo fives, I think, so they're just a bit bigger, more options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need to keep moving your hands when you're spending. All this time, yeah. On the bike have, every day. Uh, my my folding go bike has the Ergo Five, so they kind of go up and they curve in, right? So there's a like, quite a bit of yeah, position. yeah, yeah. Made a great difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, please, please with the bike. The belt um, doesn't like. Uh, so I'm about well at the moment I'm about ninety kilos. I put weight on. Would you believe? Okay. Because of all the eggs, Benny and, and bacon that they have here, <laughs> and. Um, yeah, with the weight I'm carrying, it's probably down to about 54 kilos in total now, including the bike. But I think the belt on dusty roads with that weight doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. It squeaks and, and I'm forever trying to clean it. And But I'd probably go for a, a direct drive chain with the roll-off if yeah. I was going to do it again. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you said you, you have the Sun Dynamo, you have a Sun Dynamo, right? Yes. Yeah. And you said it doesn't really work well for you because you, you find you go too slow for it to, to be able to actually charge things on the fly. Yeah. What speed do you bike? What speed? I average about 16K per hour. Okay. So, and, and that is the, that is the point at which the sun starts to kick in. So I've, I've discovered that you're not supposed to charge your phones directly. That's um, right. I think you were to charge, you charge a battery pack, but you know what? Even even when I was going through Europe, where it wasn't particularly hot at the time, it was the back end of summer. The solar panel it's twenty eight watts, and it's as quick as the European plugs, to be honest. So, yeah, okay, it's an extra kilo, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's convenient and it works and it guarantees that I've got power in that sense. So, yeah, the solar panel is far more effective. Yeah, but maybe if I was bike packing and lighter, and you know, I do I do try and pedal along as as not as quick as I can because I'm not going quick, but you know, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't hang around anyway. I don't try and hang around. It's just because of the way of the bike. Yeah. I'm assuming you're set up with four panniers and, or panniers. Yeah. It's the, it's the full, the full setup. The, the rear bags are 70 liters between them. Too big. And hence I fill every, every gap uh, with too much. But hey, I'll, I'll rectify that maybe. Mm-hmm. So then two on the front as well. And then a 49 liter rack pack on the back. Oh, okay. Wow. And handlebar bag. Mm-hmm. Got to get some of that weight out. You'll appreciate it more. Yes, I think I will. I think I will, yeah. I was going to say, I'm heading, heading uh, when I do get back on the road, I'm heading back towards the Rockies. So it would be good 
to carry less. Yeah. Yeah. And I did see that you're using a, a Brooks saddle and you're actually into your second one. So what kind of saddle, which, which Brooks saddle are you using and what happened to it? Uh, it's the B-17. Okay. Uh, and when I got, after about 7,000 kilometers, I was riding into Hanoi and, uh, and the bolt that you used to adjust snapped. Um, so I bought, I was fortunate. I landed in Hanoi. So I bought a replacement after a few days mm-hmm. of waiting. Uh, and then in, uh, Australia, I think it was, uh, this, the same thing happened with the replacement seat, the same bolt. Huh. I wrote to Brooks and said, look, this is, this is what I'm doing. This is what's happened. It seems too, too coincidental. Well, you know, give me some advice. Let, let's open some dialogue. Yeah. Uh, and I, I got a fairly standard letter back off them saying, yeah, you've either got it too tight or you've got it too loose or something. <laughs> But so, so what I've done, I've actually, the bolt, it's their own thread. So they manufacture them themselves. You can't, yeah. you can't buy a replacement bolt unless you buy it from them. So I've gone to a hardware shop and, and put a, a decent bolt in a high tensile bolt. Mm-hmm. And that's worked great. It's worked really good. So I haven't had to replace the second seat. So have you stuck, so a, you, you stuck a bolt that's a little bit skinnier to go right through the other one and with a new nut on the back or? No, no, I no. removed the, the bolt that was there and okay. I've just reconfigured um, slightly. Oh, so okay. it's, it's a slightly different setup, but, but it's, I'm still, uh, still able to use the, uh, the spanner that you get with the seat. Ah, so okay. that, that was the important thing. And it, I didn't want to buy a spanner as well to, mm-hmm. to do the adjustments. So I managed to find a bolt with the same size nut dimensions. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's been great so far, touch wood. Nice. Have you had any major mechanical issues throughout the tour? Yeah, the the mountains of Tajikistan uh, yeah. managed to uh, destroy a rear wheel, which I, I didn't actually realize until I'd, I'd gone into a bike shop and, and said, look, I, I need a new front wheel. And he looked at the back and said, yeah, you need a new back wheel as well. <laughs> um, so I've, someone, this is my fifth, fifth. Uh, I've had five wheels on the bike wow. since starting. I've crashed into three cars. And I don't know if I've actually told anybody this on the blog. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned one car that I've hit, but... Whether I'm navigating or looking for a shop or whether I'm, uh, you know, I'm writing a book, so I have a thought and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'm going to be writing on the phone. Three times I've crashed into a car while writing on the phone. So oh, I'm no. going to get such a bollocking for this. I don't do that now. That's enough. The last maybe, time happened, maybe voice memos would be better. I have tried that, yeah, um, but you get a lot of wind noise. Yeah. Um, so, so now I just look. I, I'm here to write the book. That, that's it, the research for that. So I stop and I write it down. I write the thoughts down while they're fresh in my mind, and then in the evening I can add color to that and, mm. and, and develop a story. So, but the, the last time was the last time I hit a car was in Turkey, and I was going at a reasonable pace. I was with another couple, and we were looking for a supermarket before we found our accommodation, and. I'm, I'm on the phone, da da da, and I just saw this car. There's nothing I could do. You know, it was just in, in the top of my vision, mm-hmm. and I hit this car with such a pelt, landed on the ground. The wheel was destroyed. I thought I'd broken their forks, but the guy whose car I hit got me off the road, sat me down, got me a chai, um, found me somewhere to. Um, I said to my friends, "Look, you carry on because I'm I'm, I'm stuck here now." Um, so this guy found me somewhere to put the tent up. He came back in the morning and, and drove me 70 kilometers to a shop in, in oh, uh, wow. the nearby town. But to say nearby, 70 kilometers away. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'd offered to give him some money for the for the car and he, we agreed on uh, 50 euros, which, which wasn't going to go to fix the car because the car didn't warrant the effort. But while we we're in this town, he said, uh, I must give, I must give your money to the, 
to a lady and I I didn't understand what it was all through Google Translate. Yeah, yeah. No, it turns out he the money I gave him to repair his car, he gave to his daughter for her university studies. Oh wow. And I was kind of that's that's nice. I like that. And I, I, I got to see that as well. He was such a nice guy, Remzi, and mm. we're still in touch now. That's such cool. a nice guy. I've got to tell you about Turkey. And I know I've just I listened to a recent podcast. It's an amazing place. Is it? It's kind of nervous. It's my first um, experience of uh, Central Asia, if mm-hmm. you like, or entering Central Asia. It was amazing. It was just, the people I, I, were there during Ramazan, which I thought would make it more difficult. The shops would be closed. We yep. wouldn't buy food. But we were gifted so much mm. food and bread and, and places to stay. Yeah. You know? Pretty damn well, amazing. You'd yeah. be surprised. Like I don't know how it is in Turkey, but like when I went to Iran, and for sure, you know, I thought, oh, okay, I've lived in Malaysia, so I'm, I'm like Ramadan. It's gonna be hard to find food because Iranians. I mean, they're Shiite Muslims, but mm-hmm. if you're traveling, you don't have to observe the fast. So if you go into a restaurant, they're still serving food, takeaway. But it's like, oh, if while uh-huh. you're traveling, you can take food. Or if maybe there's someone sick at home. So they don't judge you for, because you order food. They're like, no, it's possible no. your, your mother is sick at home or your, your sister's having a period. Cause if you're, you're, you know, menstruating, you don't, they don't yeah. fast and things like that. So they don't even question it. They just give you the food. So like my wife and I, we ate all over the place. We just <laughs> yeah. It's uh, the Turkish very liberal as, as well in that sense. Although you, they've got the call to prayer five times a day, yeah. which is. Damned annoying when it's four o'clock in the morning or whatever time it was at first, but I, I missed it when I left. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I um, I, I was it. I was cycling through a place called uh, Sultan Hani, and this will be news to, to to guys on the blog as well because I didn't actually write about this. Didn't okay. get time. I got approached by this guy. Got out of the car, really well presented guy, and said, "Hello, where are you from? I'm from England." Uh, and this is before Brexit and stuff, so England yeah. was, you know, it meant something. It was it was a good thing, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> it's gone mad. So he said, uh, "I'm the mayor of Sultan Hani. Um, oh. You you can join me. You can join me for chai at ten o'clock after after prayer in the evening." Uh, and I said, uh, "Yeah, okay, yeah, thank you." So he gave me a load of pita so I could have something to eat, mm-hmm. and then I went at ten o'clock. And he sat there with his. He had the head of military there. Had the, the school. Um, the head of the schools, uh, three schools in the area. Then he had the his governor there as well. So I was, wow, what am I doing here? Yeah. <laughs> I'm dressed in a t-shirt and shorts. And uh, what am I doing here? So I said, look to the, to the, to the school um, governor, can I come to your school tomorrow? And it was a Muslim school. Yeah. Um, so the, all the girls are in full dress and uniform. And um, yes, of course. So there you go. I'm, I'm in a school. I was stood on the stairs and they've got the whole school neatly lined up in front of me, ask, you know, shouting out, asking questions, a chance for them to talk English. Yeah, that was that was great. That's amazing. Uh, uh, and then the governor um, had said, so I ended up staying, I think it was three days because they had, they, they laid on so many things. They took me to a rug restoration place where they restored a rug for Buckingham Palace. And, and they had rugs from 300 different, you know, um, establishments and yeah, yeah. They were, they, were, they were proper expensive rugs. And um, so we got a, a tour on there. Uh, I joined the governor and his family for an evening meal one night. Beautiful house. The food was, and I mean, the Turkish food is it's, uh, beautiful, but this was mm-hmm. the best meal I'd had there. Uh, and then the call to prayer at 9.30. And he said, um, 
would you like to join me in a mosque? And I said, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we walk in, uh, I keep my shoes off. I'm very wary that there's 200 guys there wondering what am I, what's this, what's, what's he doing here? And you're with the um, mayor, so you I don't just, have to worry about it. <laughs> I know. Well, so I, I sat at the back and I'm there, I'll keep the shoes off and I'm sat at the back watching all things go on. And Imam, the, the, he starts, uh, I don't know whether he, he, he's, he's not singing. He's, anyway, I don't know what the correct term is, but yeah. he's, Reciting a prayer, prayer, maybe? Reciting the prayer. But his voice was incredible. I'd, I've been to one or two mosques as we were traveling through Turkey. His voice was amazing. He was mesmerized. So there's two rows of guys, and they're doing their prayer moves, routine. And um, one turns around, and he waved me over to come and stand behind. Okay. And then I would I would then join in the, the prayer sequence. Yep. And then he opened the gap. And I'm, I'm there on the second row going through the whole routine in this mosque. It was amazing. It went on for maybe 25 minutes. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, how many people get the opportunity to do this? Mm-hmm. And then, and then, and then it went quiet. And I thought, how's this going to, you know, all these guys are going to question what, what was he doing here? And they came over and shook my hand and said, welcome to our country. Absolutely amazing experience. Oh, wow. Incredible. Yeah. So yeah, Turkey. That's pretty it. amazing. It's great. Really enjoyed it. You killed my sequence, but whatever. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. I don't mind. I know you've got a plan. No, it's Sorry. all right. Actually, bef- before before we talk more about the tour, I want to ask one more question about, because um, I see you use a few different programs for planning your routes. I'm just wondering, Yeah. Uh, how do you go yeah. about it and why do you have so many programs? So Google Maps was because I'm, I was, and I still am a novice to this. Mm-hmm. I, I left Europe with Google Maps and it takes you upstairs down one way streets, the wrong way. Ah, oh, it's so frustrating. So Google Maps, when I arrive in a town, is great for finding the accommodation because you can type it, right. the, the address in or the, the, the backpacker or whatever it is, or to find a coffee. It's great for in the town. I tried Commute, but it didn't crash, but it just did its own thing basically okay. on the screen sometimes. That was much better at the route planning though. So I know you, you use uh, Osmond, uh, a German platform and and that's pretty damn good through all the countries that i've been even some of the obscure countries okay. where you don't expect mapping at all so osmond is good for, i use that on an everyday basis for getting from a to b and then switch to google for because it's linked on to uh, yeah. my data as well so i can pretty much search for anything oh, true. do you use iOverlander or something now yeah, that was really useful. So that's mm-hmm. for the the guys in the in the four wheel drives when they're going through like oh, so Tajikistan okay. and and places like that. So it tell so but it's a uh, something that you once you're registered you can update on campsites that you've found. So it's actually used a lot by the cyclists as well. And, oh, okay. and yeah, it was originally for for guys who were driving through the stands with well not necessarily the stands but places like the stands yeah yeah in in the overlander vehicles but yeah cycles motorcycles they, they all use it as well and it proved really useful for that 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 was thanks for reminding me it was really useful through okay. um, the pamias yeah. and of course maps me is just a great offline system to use yeah i rode with some a couple that uh, they use maps me yeah uh, and i have maps me on the phone so if if i'm looking for accommodation the night f- for the following day yeah, I've got a range of software. You know, there's there's Booking.com for the bigger places, mm-hmm. bigger towns. Maps.me is very good for pointing out, uh, yeah, accommodation as well as camping mm-hmm. places. Osmond is the same. So yeah, I, I tend to use them 
all because surprisingly in New Zealand, um, going up the West Coast, there's quite big distances between proper towns. You know, you may be carrying two or three days worth of food, which I didn't expect here at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been useful scouring the apps to try and find accommodation or, or somewhere to camp. Or, yeah, so I don't think there is one app. You know, you often see people questioning yeah. which is the best app out there. Uh, I don't think and I got one, one more program anything. to ask you about because um, yeah. Wiki, Wiki Camps, what is that? Oh, I'll be lost without Wiki Camps. So really? Wiki Camps uh, is fantastic here in um, New Zealand. It will find you. It it's aimed more at the RVs because when they say camping, they mean that's what they mean camping in okay. RVs. Um, but they've got a very detailed analysis if you like of each of the places that you can stay and it'll tell you if you can camp with a tent or whether it's got cabins whether it's got showers water etc mm-hmm. um, so the one in New Zealand Wiki Camps New Zealand is really good for that there's also the equivalent in Australia as well which oh, is okay. good and and the beauty of camping here is I don't think I've done any wild camping because you can find places to camp even if they're just public areas very often there's a shower and it's free or, or there's a kitchen so I've not had to, don't think I actually got my cooking equipment out. I've, oh, that's I've, got, I've got a new gas cylinder that I'm giving away. I've got hosts in, uh, in Auckland, so I'm going to see if they want the, they want the gas. Okay. So it's, in that respect, it's really good. I needn't have brought my cooking equipment there. I could have saved on, you know, a kilo away yeah. or something, whatever it is. All right. So um, talking about so, the tour, back yeah. to the tour. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's do it. For Western Europe, I don't want to spend too much time on it because I think it's it's a great way to start a bike tour to just get that, you know, get used to the habits and stuff and, and ease your way into Absolutely. the harder sections. But I wanted to ask you, what is this Definitely. gypsy camp in Belgium that you, you mentioned? Oh, uh, okay. You have research, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a period where I was leaving the Dutch-speaking part of Belgium going into the French-speaking, okay. onto the Walloon period and I'd found a canal and for about 70 kilometers along this canal it was I just saw lots of people fishing and they were living in disused boats and things like this and then I worked out okay so this is this is their lifestyle it's not they're not just here fishing they're, that's their tea for tonight and um, I just after about 70 kilometers I, I kind of felt a little bit intimidated I didn't feel safe while camping I'm by myself at this point mm-hmm. so I looked at reviews for a campsite uh, I forget what what app I was using but this campsite had really good reviews. Okay, I'll go there. And as I'm arriving, I saw the tree that was in the entrance that I recognized off the phone. I thought, great, I'm here. And I, I pulled up and there's all these girls outside what I thought was reception. And there was about maybe 100 kids playing football. And I thought, well, that's strange. What's going on here? <laughs> so I walked in, it was a bar. And and this, this woman, as soon as I saw her face, I realized, okay, because she was quite well weathered. I said, have you got a place for a tent? And she was, Oh, like, really quite nervous. So follow me. So she took me to this caravan and I'm looking at all these tents and caravans have got grass growing up the sides. And I'm thinking, this just isn't right. What's going on? Anyway, I got took to the leader, whatever you want to call him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hadn't cleaned his teeth in, is, in 30 it, years. Isn't he the Gypsy King? Isn't he the, he'd be the Gypsy King? He'd be the Gypsy King. Yeah. Right. And he didn't say anything. He listened to what she had to say. And then uh, he just pointed at a concrete slab right outside his caravan. Oh, wow. And and my kits all, you know, I'd only been riding for a few weeks. All the kits, nice and red, shiny and new. And <laughs> I, I just thought, I'm not going to get out of here. You know, my, my kit's going to disappear through the night. What am I going to do? So the lady went off. The guy walks back into the scene. I jumped on the bike and I just rode out. 
and it, it, it makes me laugh when I look at reviews for places now and people say, oh, it's really good. Of course, anybody that stays there, they're going to give it a good review. So I really take the reviews with a uh, pinch of salt these days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I think a couple of days later, I was in a campsite where it was actually overtaken. It was it was open to, there was no fence or anything. Uh, you had to go to the office to get a key to get a shower because otherwise these other people that were living by the, the river would use the facilities as well. There was this guy staring as we, I was with a, a young guy from uh, from Finland at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, we put our tents up and I said, this guy's onto us. He's, he's watching our every move, you know, everything that we put into the tent. So I took a rock to bed for me that night. Didn't leave the tent, uh, but took a rock. And I thought, if, if there's any trouble, he's getting there. <laughs> I'm not a violent guy, to be honest, but... <laughs> Now, it was, uh, it was just my nervousness. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a European, you guys are, well, I guess you could still consider yourself European, right? I know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> as yeah, a European, oh, yeah, yeah. you guys, I you guys. I don't know what I am. I, they might not let me in. Yeah, <laughs> I've right. been there for a while. You guys know what gypsies are. Do you recognize them and say, oh, I think this is a gypsy camp? Like, because I think North Americans, we might be fucked. Like, maybe like, oh, this is an interesting band of people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I don't know whether it's whether I, which I'm supposed to use that terminology or not, but without saying racist, sounding racist, I don't mean it in a racist term. Like you can, no, 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 me, me neither. Uh, because actually, I met when I was in France. Uh, I forget the town. It's it's, it's it's a town where it's it's got an octagonal wall around it. It's a beautiful town, Neuf-Spriache, I think it's something like that. But I ended up spending a night in a campsite with a girl who was homeless. And was singing in the streets of Colmar, which is a beautiful, beautiful town in France. Really is a gem. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she was uh, singing. She had a guitar and she had a hammock. And that's it. She slept outside. Um, So she was in this this campsite, which is strange because she'd have to pay for it. But anyway. And I was with this other couple from Australia. And we had such a nice time because they, they just talked so openly about traveling. And, and, and the woman uh, this of the couple said, you know, here I am four weeks into traveling. She said, now that you've dipped your toes into the water, you'll not look back. And I went, no, 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 it's a project, project. I'm just cycling around the world. I'm going to write a book, you know. <laughs> and uh, she's right. It does. It, it really does grip you. It really does. Mm. But I worked out they were travelers as well. They were traveling gypsies because back in Australia, they lived in a community that they said had no government and, you know, was their own private land and, yeah, generated oh, their own okay. electricity and, or there was no electricity or something like this. But they were beautiful people, really insightful. Mm-hmm. And um, and I guess, you know, they, they called themselves gypsies. So, yeah, there isn't one size doesn't fit all. That's true, yeah. I don't, I don't know if we really have that in Canada to that. Maybe there exists. I just don't know about it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but, it, but it's certainly a European thing, yeah. You you basically um, flew from Serbia, was it to to Thailand? No, not Serbia. Slovenia. So, uh, the idea is Slovenia. You've got me thinking. There's Slovenia and there's Slovakia. Yeah, Slovenia. So my theme is my endless summer. Yeah. When it got cold in the northern hemisphere, from Slovenia, I cycled from home to Slovenia, and then four months in Southeast Asia. So landing in Bangkok, spent a bit of time in the national parks around there. Met a, a wonderful guy called Apicit. Mm-hmm. Um, who is a dear friend now, still. From there into Cambodia for about three weeks, uh, where I fell ill for the first time. Yeah, that happens. I uh, had a quite, quite a tough time. Uh, it's funny, you know, when your mental space, I, I really struggle with the stomach because you want to eat, to, to have energy, to ride in the heat, to keep going, but you can't eat, you're sick and mm-hmm. or 
or it comes out the other end. You know, it's yeah. it was it was a tough time, and, and it spoiled my experience of Cambodia in that respect. Cambodia is a tough one because they, they they've had a tough past, and they're not quite. You know, they don't have the same rules and things in place that like some of the other countries do. Like Malaysia, I would say I would never, never had a problem eating street food there, you know, like, but Cambodia, I know lots of people that have. Malaysia is a fantastic place to cycle. Beautiful place. The people are amazing. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, Cambodia, the kids are the wildest, most enthusiastic. So no matter how bad I felt on the day, if I heard a kid screaming from from the house 50 yards away, I, I had to wave back as an obligation because you'd be a rotten person who didn't. Yeah, yeah. But the, the guys my age, they've had a tough time of life mm-hmm. in recent years, in the 70s. And you can see that in their eyes. They, they, they look at you as if to say, what the hell are you, you, you rich guy doing here? What are you coming here for? That, that's how it felt anyway. Yeah. I've since learned that my demeanor in those situations is more important than, than, than taking their responses. So if I smile or if I make the first move or I just try and make the situation relaxed, there is the, the guard drops completely. So I, I kind of went through Cambodia with with a, a moody face. You know, mm-hmm. I was ill. Yeah, maybe that's why. And, yeah. and that made the experience worse as a result of that. Now, it wasn't until Vietnam that I realized that it's me that had to make the first move. Mm-hmm. And that's that, that's one of the things that's that's changed me completely. It's one of the, the, the way I meet people for the first time now um, has changed completely. Yeah. And, and I've seen it. I've seen a, I've seen a response, you know, even buying a coffee here. Yeah. And I end up having conversations while they're making the coffee. That's never happened before. I just go in, you know, people go in, order a coffee, go and sit down, wait for the coffee coming. And I find I'm stood there talking to them. Maybe it's because I'm by myself and I, I enjoy the company yeah, or, yeah. Or, the, or the chat. That's really good. It's, it's a good thing to come of it. Well, Canadians, like we're really known for being these super nice people and stuff, not to pat our own backs yeah. or anything. I'm but that's, that's coming, the difference. Yeah. Like, my wife when we first met like she'd be like why do you talk to people in elevators i'm like well because like you're not going to just stand there and look at each other quietly like so start a conversation ask how they're doing like talk about the weather whatever it is you know yeah you go doors open <laughs> you know hold the door open for people you should see canadians try to hold the door yeah. for somebody you you could be walking and you're 20 meters behind them and if they see you coming their way they'll just pause and they'll wait and they'll Brilliant. hold that door because we put ourselves in an awkward situation. We start by holding it for a couple of seconds and we realize you're taking a long time, but it would be really rude of us to yeah. just let go of the door and go away. So we just keep holding it. <laughs> I look forward to, to my visit there. Yeah, you'll enjoy it. Look forward to that. It's nice here in Australia and New Zealand. They're very good customer focus. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll always ask, hey, how are you doing? Before they then take your order uh, and things like that. And it just makes the whole experience that much more pleasant. It's great. And is it uh, different really than like that it. in the UK? Uh, yeah. You, you order a coffee, you, you pay some money, and then go and sit down and wait for your coffee coming. And yeah. Okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe I had a miserable face before then. <laughs> the whole maybe, time, maybe, yeah, the last 23 years. <laughs> maybe I'll go back and I'll find, oh my goodness, <laughs> everyone's so nice here. <laughs> Who knows? What were some of the challenges of um, that you had to face while cycling Southeast Asia? Uh, Southeast Asia was... Uh, a culture shock at first mm-hmm. and I was only two or three months into the touring thing um, but I'd left my tent and cooking equipment at home knowing that uh, or reading that I could get accommodation anywhere and I think I only had one day really where I'd got to the accommodation it was closed okay I, I hadn't booked I got to the point where I'd just ride into a town or, and find somewhere I like the look of um, which is kind of irresponsible sometimes but at the same time it's all part of being free and yeah and letting letting luck 
take take hold. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, I got to this place, it was closed down. So, okay, it's getting dark. So I rode to the next place. And I ended up adding about 60 kilometers onto, onto the day, just trying to find somewhere because I hadn't got a tent and I was thinking about the bugs and things and I didn't want to mm-hmm. sleep out. So, uh, but no, Southeast Asia, it's great cycling, cheap food, street food, all the warnings about don't have the ice, don't have salad, don't do this. When you're there for for four months, it'd be a pretty miserable existence, miserable existence yeah. if you didn't just eat the food that was available yeah, like, to you. It's so, country by country. Like, that's like fine. Malaysia, all their ice is factory made with filtered water, like, yeah, it's not the same. Yeah. You know? Um, Thailand, I think is pretty good. Maybe Cambodia, you're, you maybe you're risking a little bit more. You know? Yeah. So. Cambodia. Yeah. 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 Definitely. I'm, I'm with you on that. I actually had this stomach upset before Cambodia, but I carried it mm-hmm. through most of Cambodia. So, um, and that was difficult. They, going back to the, the, the people, I would go into a, a street food place mm-hmm. in the evenings and I'd be so hungry and they would ignore me and and, it, and at first I, I thought it was damn rude but i realized they were nervous they didn't know how to approach me um because i, I didn't i didn't take the i didn't just go down the, the main road the highway i was into the countryside i went right to the, the border in the north and some quieter towns and um yeah and so there's a couple of times i'd gone into a restaurant i was just being ignored so i ended up walking back out again but to, i counter that with i was in a restaurant i and i this is where i'd say how i changed i just waltzed in hey i'm really kind of hungry I would like that so she had no choice but to yeah. get a ladle out and serve me some of this food so I had this food it's really nice and um, when I went to pay somebody said oh that table's paid for your food and it was a table of maybe Chinese um, travellers mm-hmm. but they were with a monk and the monk had suggested that they pay for my meal so when I found this out I went across and he's, he held his hand out to shake my hand and I said no give me a hug <laughs> I don't know whether you're supposed to hug monks or not, but I think it's okay. So, so then he he said, uh, "You must come to my to, I'm, I'm at the temple, such and such, uh, via Prahir, I think it's called. Uh, tomorrow or in two days' time, you must visit." So, hey, that an invite from a monk to go to it. Yeah, it's great. I think as that long as nice. you don't like pat him on the head or something, you're okay. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So yeah, because in the in the Buddhist thing, like the head is like the crown of the head is like where your chi and stuff is. So it's like t- touching okay. somebody there's you don't. It's a no go. I think in a lot of civilizations that would go down. That pretty would awkward probably anyway, pretty most it, places. So. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> even kids though. Like in in Southeast Asia, you wouldn't like tap a kid oh. on. You wouldn't pat him on the head like good job. Okay. Even in school. Okay. Um, yeah. Right. Thank you for that. Do you have a favorite country in the Southeast Asia region? One that you for- like that stood out more than any others. Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. I think, mm, I mean, Laos. Laos was an amazing experience. What a beautiful place that, place. that is. I, I flew through there, though. I was in the north, really mountainous. The people, having gone from really noisy, God, so noisy, from five o'clock in the morning till midnight in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. The people are so outgoing as well. Um, hello, hello, as you're riding past. Mm-hmm. I didn't need to, to, to learn to learn any of the language <laughs> uh, in that respect. They, they were so keen to talk. And then you got crossover into Laos. I think there's about 15 kilometer dead man's, no man's land. And the people were so reserved in Laos, mm-hmm. so reserved. And again, that took me a while to get used to that. Crossing a border by bike is such a crazy experience, amazing experience. Why so? You're sort of vulnerable for a while because you've got no SIM card. You've got maybe not got any other currency. And then you've got to deal with the culture changes as well. Did you have to pay any bribes crossing any borders? 
Uh, yeah, into uh, into Lao. I knew about this four. I forget the unit. Lao Kip is it? Um, yeah, it was. I, I kind of knew it was coming because I was there after four o'clock. I read about it. I don't mind. It was pennies. Yeah, I, I was crossing a border. There's a lot of military. Another, another. When we get to Central Asia, I can't wait. We're going to talk about yeah. Central Asia. Oh yeah, we will. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so there, there was a, a situation there where in Central Asia where I was in uh, the, the Pamiers and he was hinting, he showed me all these th- all these gifts that this French cyclist had given him or this <laughs> German cyclist had given him, etc. So he was expecting me to then gift him something. But no, he was friendly. It was fine. There was no, I have no trouble with border crossings. What did you, uh, was, what did you give the guy? I, I didn't give him anything. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> I think I'm carrying everything I need to, I mean, I was in the Pamiers as well. I kind of needed my cooking knife and I kind of needed my, you know, stove and things like this. So no, I, I didn't actually give him anything, but um, hey, but it was fine. It was just, a, it, it was all really lighthearted mm-hmm. and they were really helpful. They actually helped me get a place to stay that night as well in the middle of nowhere. It's really, really, really nice guys. Sweet. Let's just finish up with Southeast Asia here, but which country had the best food? Yeah. Oh, I, you know, it's a I tough actually one, so. liked uh, yeah, I know. I liked the food in Laos, 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 how you mm-hmm. say it, um, because it wasn't too, in Thailand, sometimes it's too spicy for me. Okay. I, yeah, and I, I kind of liked it there. It was very similar food, but yeah, I liked the the, the, the rice dishes, the fried rice dishes. So yeah, yeah they, they went down well. Uh, to be honest, and then Malaysia, come on, you've got you've got three different so good, know, isn't it? Um, cuisines there. Yeah, and the food is good. Yeah, um, I lived there for seven years. I, I miss was, it so much. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. I was doing some big distances by that time though, because I was behind schedule. I was doing about mm-hmm. 140k a day, okay. which was too much. But um, even so, I still got a flavour of the country. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was it was nice. Nice. Did you go down nice, the east coast uh, or the west coast section. of Malaysia? Uh, I've got to work out which is which. Uh, I went down um, the west coast, past Penang. And, I was kind of yeah. yes. I went to Penang. Uh, with a view, I was trying to get to Singapore, but uh, I wasn't going to make it. I was coming back for, there's a particular reason I was coming back, maybe a wedding or something, and back to the UK. Oh, okay. I only got as far as Kuala Lumpur, which was a really nice place to, to finish off yeah. that section of the journey. So so that was nice. But Malaysia is, is nice. It was, uh, it was a great experience. Yeah. yeah. Mal- Kuala Lumpur and, and, and the people. I don't feel like Kuala Lumpur is the best like tourist city, but like if it's a, if you're, Gonna live somewhere like I lived there for a few years, and yeah, just to, to go to nice cafes and get to know local people. Like it's really, it's a country like Malaysia in general, but like Kuala Lumpur, it's so easy to make friends from like within the country itself. Yeah. You know, a lot of times Westerners tend to make friends with yeah, Westerners, yeah. yeah, and people stick to their demographics. But like Malaysia, man, we had so many friends from all cultures and races, and it, uh, it was amazing. I loved it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a uh, a romantic in in that I would arrive at these places. This to think I've cycled from home to here or I've cycled all this distance. So I'm arriving in Kuala Lumpur. There's the Twin Towers. Mm. Uh, I There was a Malaysian guy as I sat down to work out where am I going to get a coffee. A Malaysian guy, a Malay guy came across and had a chat. We, we exchanged contact details so we could follow the blog and things like this. I met some Canadians. I met an Australian. It just seems like a really friendly it's environment. A place. Really friendly place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that was in the space of a couple hours of arriving. It was... Um, that was a really nice welcome, really nice finish to that end leg of the cycling as well. Okay. After after four months in Southeast Asia, I then indirectly flew um, to Slovenia. 
again to yeah. continue through through Europe. I've got two boys, uh, grown men, 25 and 28. So when I change from hemisphere north to south or south north, I'll go home and spend okay. a bit of time at home with them first and then move on. Yeah. So Perfect. So, um, yeah, so you flew, home, you, you indirectly went to Slovenia. You, you went... Um, or sorry, not Slovenia, but to the Balkans, right? From when you left Malaysia, you yeah. went to a wedding and then you yep. flew to the Balkans? So Slovenia, then uh, Croatia, uh, and then headed towards the coast. I went to go to Mostar in Bosnia. So mm-hmm. that was just like a two or three day side trip, uh, again on the bike in the worst headwind I've ever had. Met a French cyclist there as I was looking for my accommodation. So um, a girl, Pauline, and we rode for two days through through Bosnia and then again in Croatia. Uh, I think she's now in Africa, which is a very brave brave thing cool. to do for a lady. But you, you meet so many people. It's, it's such a, a network that you meet, you know, and you, you're still in touch through Instagram and things like that. It's really, really good following other people's yeah. journeys. And uh, it's like the class of 2019 or 2020. And yeah, it's great. I've never actually respect. been so, to the Balkans, but I mean, I know that they, they had a pretty brutal war there in the 90s. And um, and I've heard that there's a lot of remnants of the war still noticeable, right? Absolutely. It's upsetting. Bosnia, maybe it's just the route I took. People say, oh, Bosnia is a beautiful place. So I don't know if it was the time of year or the route that I took. It was desperate, desperate. Yeah. And so, you know, how um, I was riding with a, a guy who got a photograph of a house that was still intact, the kitchen, you could look in the windows and the kitchen's still intact. They've still got tins of food and things there. And there's a bomb through the roof. And it's been like that since 1990 something. Just got, just got abandoned. And there's so many examples of that. You've got houses, even in Croatia, full of bullet holes and and next to a house, which has been renovated since and and redecorated and what have you. So I was riding along. I don't know if you know the Teletubbies in the UK. We've I, got this I know the kids yeah, program. I know the cartoons, yeah. yeah. So you imagine you imagine the landscape, the, the bumpy landscape. So I'm mm-hmm. riding along in in Croatia, thinking this is such a crazy landscape. And when I looked at the Google Maps, I realised that they were bomb craters. Oh. A bomb crater every thirty or forty meters. No way. Huh? And it was just full. I've got a, I've got a screenshot on my phone that I share people when I'm been having a chat. So you go through this place and and again, it's changed the characters of the people there. So they're in houses that you then realize, okay, them houses have only been there 30 years at uh, the most. And they're such humble people as well, kind people. So you mentioned you mentioned the war. Um, mm-hmm. I stayed in a place called Cressach and I got stuck there because of snow, uh, despite the project being my endless summer, but I got <laughs> stuck in about a foot of snow. Yeah. And I was staying in a homestay with a guy who was a soldier during the war for five years. Okay. And um, Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag-making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. 
Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Mangin in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. Such a nice guy. Such a nice guy. And I think that, the, the, well, I think, I know the war had changed him. You know, he, he just wanted to get the most out of life and value his health and things like that and his beautiful wife, as he said. So, um, yeah, that's experiences like that. You, you, you don't get them on a, a package holiday. Well, that's what I was going to ask is how the people were like, was there a sense of bitterness at all in the people or were they just kind of moving on no. and said, no, we're done with it. Like it's such a strange topic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I've seen so many scars of war in so many countries. Now I find myself going to museums. I went to one in, uh, here in New Zealand as well and it's so moving and you just wonder what the hell's war all about so yeah the soldier I don't think he wanted to go to war I don't think it was his thing he had to follow orders uh, yeah I don't, but no no I, I don't know about fitness maybe maybe times healed out a little bit but yeah. I didn't get any of that all I just all I got was a, a kind soul as a result of mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah I don't know what to say really but yeah did you mostly stay in hotels, campsites, wild camp? What did you do? It depends. It depended who I was traveling with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've met, uh, I've spent time with about, I think it's 32 people so far. Okay. That are either, either individuals or uh, as a couple or in a group. At one time, there's a group of 10 of us, which was crazy heading towards <laughs> uh, Azerbaijan, I think it was. Yeah. It was a really nice experience. So a, a whole range. Um, a little bit. I haven't done any, I've only done warm showers once. Okay. Uh, in Nelson, and that was a lovely experience. Um, and I should be doing more of that, I think, just to try and uh, save on on money. But after Southeast Asia, I tended to, where I was staying in in accommodation for maybe eight or ten dollars a night, mm-hmm. and it was great accommodation. It was really clean, air conditioned, etc. Fridge maybe as well. So I kind of got into the habit of using accommodation rather than right. a tent. So, which is a little bit extravagant, but you know, hey, I'm I'm paying for it. So that's right. It's your tour, your way, yeah, man. It's my tour. Yeah. So I'm just going to carry the tent, which weighs 2.7 kilos, from <laughs> hotel to hotel. There you go. <laughs> there you go. It's my point. It's my payment. Is there any one country in the Balkans that you would um, love to return to, just to spend more time there? Croatia. The Croatia? coast in Croatia was absolutely beautiful i was there at that point it was maybe the end of march so it was a nice temperature it wasn't too hot um but the waters are amazing the colors of the waters um i wanted to do you know uh, maybe it's maybe it's me maybe i'm i've got this all wrong but you see photographs of people jumping in the water naked and yeah da, da, da. i wanted to do that scene uh, in those waters but i never <laughs> actually found the opportunity to do it <laughs> Maybe, maybe on the, maybe I'll find a, a lake or something somewhere. Yeah, maybe in Costa Rica uh, yeah. or something when you get down there. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it when you go back to England. It might be a little bit cold. Uh, no, no, what's too cold anyway? It wouldn't, it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't be such a good thing. So you, you spoke of, uh, you spoke of Turkey and then uh, from there, obviously you went into Georgia and then Azerbaijan. Uh, what was that experience yeah. like? And you did mention in uh, your your blogs or notes that you were traveling with some women in Azerbaijan and it made you feel ashamed to be a man. Like, why? What was the situation? Uh, that was uh, Marie and Eva. So I'd pretty mm-hmm. much, I'd worked out by this point that when I do a border crossing, yeah. I'm not going to make it a big day. I'm going to make it an easy day for cycling. And then I can think about finding a, a, somewhere to get a SIM card and get cash and things like this. 
So I pretty much crossed the border, which is it's an odd border crossing, really. They were really quite keen to find out if I had a drone and they x-rayed the bags, and things like that. And then they took my passport and carried it around back and forth, trying to show how important they are. It's a bit of an odd crossing. but mm-hmm. So I stopped for some food in a bush shelter and these two girls approached on their bikes and ended up riding through um, the whole of Azerbaijan. And there was such fun, these two. It was really, really good experience. But what um, I found though was that, I mean, the, the, the people in, Azerbaijan is so friendly. Yeah. They would beat the horns and wave and shout out the windows. But when I was with the girls, that blowing of the horn was wasn't just a peep peep. It was a beep 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 beep. And they were hanging out the windows and and then they wanted photographs with the girls. They would ask me to step to one side and things like that. It's quite embarrassing, really. Yeah. It was a little bit a little bit too much. But they they, they were they were they seemed to take it in their stride. And I know since mm-hmm. that, that, you know, it can get too much. It kind of takes it away, the, the enjoyment for them as well. So I was a little disappointed in that respect, but, um, but no, the, the, the people are really, really nice there. I'm going to say this about pretty much all the Central Asian countries that I've been to, the, well, the Asian countries full stop. Mm-hmm. The people have been fantastic. Okay. Really have. So from uh, Azerbaijan, obviously you took the boat across to the stands because you can't go through Iran, wrong passport. Mm-hmm. Now, I've heard that the ride from Aktau to Dushanbe, I mean, there's a lot of desert and it can be pretty brutal. What was, um, what did you think of the region? And yeah. Was it worthwhile? So we, arri- we arrived, we crossed the Caspian Sea on the Professor Gull, which was an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a boat trip that's so unreliable. <laughs> and um, it's so unreliable. You read so many things in the blogs about them and, and it, everything happened that you read about, everything happened. But it kind of worked out well for us. We got a call to say, okay, the ship's arriving. So we had to ride work from Baku, which is the most amazing city. Uh, it was so unexpected. And the rest of the country is quite poor uh, yeah. in Azerbaijan. And you get to Baku and it's so rich and beautiful and opulent and gorgeous, really nice place to be. So we decided to hang out. I was still with the girls then. We'd, we'd hang out there until we knew there was a ship coming in. And then we get a message, somebody who's camped out at the, the, uh, at the port mm-hmm. get yourselves here it's leaving at five o'clock so we rode like fury this 70 kilometers with a huge tailwind to, to, to get there did the crossing yeah. which worked out reasonably well and then arrived in Kazakhstan and you've got camels and desert and you think right this is different I'm in it now <laughs> uh, yes definitely in it now so we had we had a, a 30 kilometer ride i think to the first town where we'd be able to stock up on food and water and things like that and then i think is it Aktau on the other side the big city so we yeah. spent a couple of days there had relaxing and then we would hit the desert proper and i had 300 kilometers to go between there and bay now the other people i was riding with at the time had chosen to take the train because it was going to be a dull journey. And from Bain out there, they took a train to Nexia, Nexus in Uzbekistan. But I decided I'm riding. Okay. I'm going to ride the, the 300 kilometers. But it was useful because I found that the, the on the app, it would tell me there's water and there wasn't water. Um, so I learned a great deal about riding through the desert in that, in that 300 kilometers. It took me three days. Uh, and by the end of that trip, I was carrying 15 liters of water a day. Wow. So I had bottles strapped all over the bike, a five litre bottle behind the seat because you need enough water uh, to get through the day, to cook in the evenings and also to know that you can get up in the morning, you've still got some reserve until you can find water again. So so from Aktau to Bay now is 300 kilometres, just that uh, that section? Yeah, 
pretty much it's probably more than that but there was okay. a three kilometer section was the, was was the remote section where you come across a, a building now and again and you have to go and ask for water and they take it out mm. of a well and and maybe they'll make you a try or something um, wow. so yeah that was that was really really um, useful learning curve for Uzbekistan which was more of the same um, mm. but bigger distances so I, I went to Baynow, I met a, a wonderful guy there who drove up when I was coming out of a shop and said, you must stay with me. So I ended up staying with him and his family for two days. A lovely guy, sat on the floor in his living room with his, his young child was climbing all over me. I, I actually said, well, I can say this because, you know, his English was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? I was scared of coming to the stands of all I've read. And the conversation we had, I could have been anywhere in the world. Having this no conversation way, with this huh? guy, I worked out. Worries about the world, and and he was, you know, talking about the UK to politics and things like this. An amazing guy. Where did he guy. get his English skills from? Uh, well educated. Uh, he was based in uh, Almaty, actually, as it turns out. He was he was house sitting for his parents. Okay. Um, so I, I've got to be careful. He's, he's going to hear this. <laughs> I don't know. He was well edu- well educated. Uh, the, the family was well off, I think, yeah. as well. Well, I mean, but generally, like English. a lot of Central Asia, they, they'll all speak, everybody knows Russian, but English might not be as common. Mm. So that's the only reason I was asking. Russian. This, so. Definitely Russian. Yeah. Yeah. I've got that everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so from Baynow, I then left to cross the border into Uzbekistan. And I'm faced then with 160 kilometers before there was anything. So that night I was as I've been quoted as saying, bricking it. I don't know if I said that, but yeah, yeah uh, I was I was nervous anyway, because I knew the first 70 kilometers were broken road. Uh, so you you are pedaling and then stopping to get over, get through a hole in the road and things like wow. this. But it was 160K to the next building, the next opportunity for shelter. I mean, even the signs, the sun's so high in the sky that, that there's no shade behind the signs or anything like mm-hmm. that. So that was... You know, but I've got my 15 litres of water and I've got all day to cycle. So that was the first day there. And I think I averaged 140K a day for the oh, wow. 10 days I was riding. But it's just mind-numbingly monotonous, <laughs> tedious. But anyway, I went to Kiva, mm-hmm. which was really nice. I had a few days there and had a bit of a rest. And then back into the desert to carry on down, or the desert step, as they call it. Yeah, so you're kind of following the river or like the the little green bed, right? There's a little green zone. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. So the the whole reason for going to Kiva, I knew nothing about Uzbekistan, um, but if you if you jump back uh, a couple of years, I watched a documentary about this woodcarver um, who um, made the posts for for the mosques, I mean, decorative posts, and some some beautiful woodwork. And I, I love the woodwork, so um, I'm watching this documentary, and I I said I'm going to go to Kiva. I'm going to meet this man. So he's on the BBC, all well and good. I tried to Google, I tried to find out what his name was, and sure enough, he's in Kiva. Cool. So I cycled I cycled through the desert for so many days, got to Kiva, found his workshop, where is, I think he's something like Shavak, is his name? Ah, he's resting. He's at home. Uh, okay. Anyway, I went back three times over a period of three days. On the third day, so I cycled from England. I need to see, I want to see this man. I want to meet this man. So I said, okay. So they took me to his house, which actually is a hotel. I go to the reception, speak to his daughter. His daughter's delighted, so she runs off. And he came out with such a big smile on his face. He was dressed like so well as well, so so beautifully dressed. Oh, yeah. Bought me uh, chai, food, took, took me to a tour of his hotel or his, what was his family home uh, and showed me the work that he's done. A great experience. Wow. So surreal. And then, and then said, um, so you can you will be my agent in the UK. 
you will sell my 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 woodwork? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm going to cycle first if you don't mind. <laughs> so so we'll see. We'll see what happens. One day. That was a great experience. Yeah. But so I, I kind of set up a, a number of these these scenarios uh, as I'm traveling. So when I, I pick someone based on, yeah, I like I like the idea. I like that guy. I'm going to go and visit him more. So I've done a number of those, and it's uh, it's really good. Really closes ticks ticks a lot of nice boxes. Yeah, and I'm assuming on the way to Dushanbe, you stopped in Samarkand as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, that you know what was really the thing that sticks out there. You've got mm -hmm. um, the I forget the name of the building. The Ra da, da, da. very beautiful anyway. Very beautiful. Uh, you get to read about the history and why it's there, which Registan. is not, not so nice. Registan, thank you. It's a lovely place to rest because you know then that you're going into Tajikistan and, and the fun starts in the Pamirs. Uh, and also there's a great cycling touring community there as oh, well that's yeah. fluid. It's really nice, really nice place. But it's so difficult to get money, to get money out. Really difficult. And that was a sign of things to come because it was just going to get worse in, in Tajikistan. It was really difficult. Mm. Um, the sales just wouldn't take your cash. And if you did get cash, you you were getting US dollars and then you had to get the US dollars changed. So yeah, I pretty much spent a full day trying to get money out one um, one day when I was there just in order to, to pay the accommodation and, oh, wow. you know, and have a bit of a rest. So yeah, you, things you take for granted. I think you, you mentioned... Um that Tajikistan is uh, one of your favorite countries you've been to. Um, Absolutely. Before you share yeah. the reasons for that, can you tell me what is a tunnel of death? This is actually the first time I've heard of it. Really? Mm -hmm. You? I thought you were a touring cyclist. Come you know? on. <laughs> now then. <laughs> no, I just lived through all the other people's um, experiences and nobody's chosen to tell me about it. <laughs> well, it's rightly named as well. So you, you cycle for maybe a couple of days down a nice valley. You're climbing and climbing and climbing. And then you get to this tunnel of death and the first few meters are illuminated, um, but it's not ventilated. It's full of, I mean, all the trucks there, they're, they're, they're all ex 1970s Soviet trucks mm -hmm. blowing out smoke. That, that's one of the overwhelming memories of uh, Tajikistan, the smoke and everything. And, uh, and this tunnel is so narrow and dark. It's not illuminated after, and it's about 5k long. The lorry drivers drive through like lunatics and they're overtaking. They cannot see for smoke, uh, for the fumes coming into the way. So when you arrive by bicycle, sometimes you're stopped if there's police there or a lorry will just stop. We, you know, you don't have to ask. They'll stop, throw your bikes in the back uh, and they'll take you through. Really? Yeah. There was actually one of the guys one of the guys I've got to mention, Stefano, that I'd, uh, I'd met in Uzbekistan. We rode through the desert together for a short while. He uh, he said, hey, just put a face mask on and ride like the wind. <laughs> and he rode through and we're in, in the lorry and I just thought, Stefano, you're a nut. You really are crazy. It was mental. Because you couldn't see anything really, yeah. Um, you could not see. You can you can see clips there on YouTube, yeah. Um, it's... It's unavoidable. It's it's part of the journey. Yeah. Uh, from there, you're a couple of ways away, for, a couple of days away from Dushanbe. Yeah, great experience. Again, another nice box ticked. I'd read about these things, and then to yeah, be there, yeah. you sort of pinch yourself. Yeah, this is it. I'm on the journey. I'm on the Silk Road. So you yeah. didn't ride it though, huh? So it hardly counts. No, I did not. No, <laughs> I, no. I'm kind of I'm kind of a, an adventurer, and I kind of enjoy taking risks now and again. But no, nah, that's just not worth it. And yeah, a bit irresponsible. 
All right, just some background information about the Tunnel of Death. It's actually called the Anzob Tunnel. It's 5,040 meters long, located north of Dushanbe. And although it originally opened in 2005, it was extremely dangerous at that point. And it was later finished and reopened in 2015. And um, originally it was supposed to be two tunnels, but they only ever finished one. So traffic has to go in two directions within one tunnel, which makes it much more dangerous. Until 2015, when they closed it for renovations and Iran finished it for them, it actually didn't even have pavement inside it. It was just dirt. There was no ventilation or lighting. And they often had problems with flood and smog. It seems like the flooding and smogging would still be an issue, but at least now it's paved. So there you have it. If you want a real crazy life experience, check out the Tunnel of Death. What did you uh, What did you love about Tajikistan? Well, I was in the Pamir Mountains. For goodness' sake, I'd I'd been I'd read about this. I was so excited, so nervous about going through the Pamir Mountains, and um, I didn't really know because this, until you get there, you don't actually appreciate what it is that you're taking on, even mm-hmm. though you've spent time on Facebook and doing your research. So I'd met a couple back in Turkey. We met again in Samarkand and agreed to ride together over because I didn't want to do it by myself. Mm-hmm. We'd have to choose a route. So you've got the M41, which is an old Soviet road, which is destroyed, which takes you up to four and a half thousand meters, something like that. Yeah. Or you've got a couple of valleys. The most popular valleys are the Bartang and uh, the Wakan Valley. So we'd heard that the Bartang was the most beautiful. So let's ride the Bartang. Yeah, okay, okay. And while we were sat in Samarkand drinking chai and having nice food, we came up with the idea, we could do both valleys. Why don't we do both valleys? Yeah, let's do that. So I got it. Once I get these ideas into my head, yeah, that's it, okay, we're doing both valleys. But partway through the Bartang, worked out that the couple I was with, a husband and wife, Mm -hmm. were happy that they'd done the Bartang and and really, you know, after that, it was quite tough. They're going to move on and, and carry on to Kurdistan. So that left me in a situation where I said, well, look, if you don't mind, guys, I'm going to I'm gonna crack on. I'm doing both valleys. Nice. So rode through the Bartang, which is, is an eight-day ride, I think. And after day four or five, you leave all the villages and you, you're then alone. You might come across shepherds or, or, or people traveling in the opposite direction, um, but you're pretty much you're carrying all the food that you need to carry. You're getting water from rivers and filtering. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd left this couple. Uh, I had two more days to go. I'm cooking my food and my fuel ran out because we, because we split up, we shared the fuel. Right. Uh, so my fuel ran out. So that was the end of that meal. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I've got a gas bottle. I'll put the gas on a multi fuel burner, but the gas wouldn't come through. I couldn't get it working. So I ended up throwing it Was the elevation too high? Uh, it was blocked. Oh, okay. And no matter, I, I, I stripped, I've stripped this, it's a primus. Mm-hmm. Um, I've stripped it down so many times on this journey and tried to clean it out on this occasion and nothing happened. And I thought, okay, I've got, I've got no food for two days. I've only got dry pasta. Um, you need food because you're at elevation. I was at this point, you're knocking on for 4,000 meters and it's hard work. Um, and I went to bed thinking, okay, this is a situation. Where, what do I do? Where do I, where do I go from here? And during the night, I worked out that if I was to um, connect all the components to my bike hose, bike pump, and I used the bike pump to clear the blockage uh, on the stove. Oh, okay. So I was able to get up in the morning and make and make some pasta and and that sort of and it, moments like that are great when you when you have a breakthrough <laughs> when you don't die. 
<laughs> when you don't die. <laughs> so then um, I remember a day away from getting out of the, the Basang Valley and, it, and you climb to the, to the highest point, the plateau, again, around about 4,000 meters. And I saw this sign pointing to this, um, this, this, these rocks, which when you watch the videos, yeah, there's something to do with uh, uh, like a calendar, uh, uh, a calendar stars or something like this. Mm-hmm. And I stopped and I haven't got the wind rush past my ears. The bags aren't rattling. I stopped and there's complete silence and I'm by myself and I could see mountains 200 kilometers away and I'm like, whoa, what am I doing here <laughs> by myself? So it was one of the most scary moments, but at the same time, most liberating. I just thought, yeah, after this, anything, anything's possible. It's amazing. So Batang was a very, very beautiful experience, but I knew that I was going to do the Wakan Valley. So I wrote to Murgab. Mm-hmm. I didn't have enough money. I only had Dollars. So does the Bartang Valley uh, go across to Murgab? It doesn't, no. You, you'd leave the Bartang and then turn left. You'd back onto the M41 and you're heading to a town before Karakul, before you head into Kurdistan. Okay. I turned right knowing that I was going back. So if from Murgab, I could get a taxi back to Korog, mm-hmm. uh, where I'd left some of my gear. Uh, oh, okay. I a laptop and things like mm-hmm. that. So I left some gear there. The taxi driver then took this box of stuff back to Murgab and left me to cycle back through the Wakan Valley. Ah, okay. Um, so I had a few days rest there. So Wakan Valley, as you know, borders Afghanistan for yeah. a couple hundred K before turning inland. And you're overlooked by the Hindu Kush, which is an incredible uh, range of mountains. So I stayed, I was staying in a hostel with a lady who used to be a travel agent and she was, she was from Tajikistan, uh, about my age, maybe a bit younger, but so knowledgeable of, of the, the troubles there and the, the history and politics, et cetera. So I really enjoyed that and, and got to learn a lot about that town and, uh, and the Soviet practices that are still going on. And so the day I'm leaving, I'm packing the bike and she said, do you have a tent? I said, yeah, yeah, it's here. And I pointed at the back. She said, will you please camp behind a rock <laughs> when I'm going down the valley? You know, keep away from the Afghanistan side. And I'm like, oh my God, what are you telling me? What, what's <laughs> happening here? So that ride, that's when I started um, listening to podcasts. I was oh, okay. so nervous going to the valley. I was thinking, what the hell am I doing? Why, why do I put myself in these situations? Right. And I wrote about it, but I didn't post because I thought, you know what? Maybe my views will change as this goes on. And they did. It was a beautiful experience. And any any people from across the river I saw, I mean, it was like looking at a nativity play in terms of the clothing and, and the donkeys and, and the mud huts and things like that. But the kids are amazing. So shouting across the river. Yeah. Uh, hello, hello. And the adults as well. It was amazing. Yeah, well, it is possible to cycle on the, that walk-on corridor part too. And apparently it's, I mean, well, according to Victor, it's, uh, it's somewhat safe. Beautiful. <laughs> amazing, and it's amazingly amazing beautiful. Experience. Yeah, and that's what he says. Yes, but the first four days, I was, I was a bit disappointed actually the first four days because it was so, so many people, so many villages, even though they don't show so prominently on the maps. And there's a lot of flat land there, uh, escape land, if you like, for the, mm-hmm. for the river. And, and they're growing the crops and, and they were harvesting when I was going through because this was August, September by this point. And I was kind of disappointed that it was, it was a bit easy. Anyway, I got to Langar, which was day four or night four if you like mm-hmm. there's no internet in the hostel I was in but I'd heard that there was an alternative route instead of going back to the M41 which is the, the more popular route out of the Bakan Valley there was the Zorkal Lake which you could take which was another two or three days of complete isolation oh, wow. so I'm looking at them trying to look I'm trying to look at the Google Maps to, to try and find a road and the road ended after the lake 
it didn't continue. I was thinking, ah. What was okay, the name of the lake? Zorkul, Z-O-R-K-U-L. Okay. So it's a, it's a national park. You had to actually, I'd already bought the, uh, you, you have to get a, a ticket to go into that park. It sound, mm-hmm. makes it sound like a, <laughs> a play park. But no, you had, to, you had to get, you have to pay to go into the national park. So I bought the ticket in anticipation. And it's only when I got to Langar and I wanted to do the research, I realized I couldn't because I had no signal. So I'm asking the locals and some would say, oh, yeah, 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 it's fine. And some would say, no, cannot go, uh-huh. don't go. Anyway, I got up in the morning and I did, didn't I? I'm, I'm going to do it. And uh, that was the most amazing experience. So it was three days maybe of not seeing anybody. The bike, the handlebar bag, because the road was so, the washboard was so bad on the road, or on the track, the handlebar bag snapped off. Oh, no. So I had to repair that in the middle of nowhere. And I used a bit of fencing to repair that. Uh, I got a puncher with, with 70K to go before I was back in onto the onto the road. I fixed the puncher, I thought. I put the bags back on the bike and the tyre's gone down again. And I thought, oh, I've got one more tube left. What am I going to do? So it's quite stressful. I ended up finding yeah. somewhere I, I could, uh, a little puddle, I could find the puncher and work out where it was on the tyre and things like that. So that was fine. But yeah, that's got to be one night, of the most annoying things in the world when you've got a super small leak oh, and you can't find it. Yes. And also, I, I was really worried that I would put the last tube in and, and I would be stuck 70 kilometres from... You know, and, and I had a bit of bread left to eat. Um, so that was kind of, that was one of those moments as well, you know, where I was I was glad to get it behind me. That took me to the very end of the, the Wakan Valley. So I'd done this this extra leg as well. And then the following morning, I had just this massive, these huge emotions having realized what I'd taken on for the last 10 days by myself. For me anyway, it was a big deal. And uh, coming out of there, I've never had such high such a high before. It yeah. was incredible. I've thought about it and kind of like you, I'm thinking like if I were to go there, I'm just going to invest like three weeks. I'll have a pretty light setup yeah. and I'm going to hit as many of those things as I can. Just yeah. eat it up. It was amazing. For, for that reason, it was amazing. I lost by that point, by the end of that, I'd lost 15 kilos no shit. in weight. From the point that I left home, I lost eight kilos in Tajikistan just because the bread is awful. You will get a bad stomach and I was on antibiotics that my doctor had prescribed. I've been carrying for, I don't know how many months, 12 months. Why is the bread so awful? I don't know if it's because it goes off quickly, but basically I've got to be careful. The bread is revered. You've got to respect the bread. You cannot throw the bread away. You cannot place it on the on the floor. Even though you're eating off the floor, you've got to place it on a plate. Oh, wow. But right. it's so dry, just so dry. Yeah, yeah. So whatever you've got the opportunity for soup or, or something that you could dip the bread in, then I would do that. But you're eating bread that was three days old, basically, as well. And, it, and you've got it in a plastic bag maybe, but it's on your bike and mm-hmm. that's all you've got to eat. So you kind of get sick of it, just like you get sick of pasta yeah, after 10 enough. days. But it's better than crunching through pasta if you had no working stove, right? <laughs> oh, yes, exactly. I didn't, have, I didn't try that. But Do you think if you stick pasta just in water and let it soak for like 15 hours or overnight, well, would it soften up enough to eat? I've been desperate enough to cook pasta in a kettle so not in the kettle but i'd have a pan but no no hob so or no gas or anything so i boil the kettle leave it a few minutes and then boil it again and just repeat that process three or four times and eventually oh, okay. end up with pasta that turns to mush but okay. hey it's calories you gotta do what you gotta do so <laughs> yeah so then uh Go Tajikistan, I, I had nine hours left on my visa before being expelled. No kidding. It was such a great experience. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to make the most of every every moment of it. So yeah. when you're when you're exiting that area, you're going 
past Karakul Lake and then out into um, to Kyrgyzstan. Is that it? Is that where you cross out? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you cross the border. Again, you've got a big climb there as well. I'd already gone across the Akbaital, I think it's called, at 4,600 meters in Tajikistan. And then you cross another climb of 4,200 or 300 okay. meters to get into Kurdistan. And then you've got quite a big area of no man's land. Mm-hmm. Awful track, road, destroyed road, uh, but nothing for 30K. So you've got to then get to, I think it was Saritash. Yeah, it was Saritash, yeah. But the scenery is spectacular. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. Yeah. yeah it's amazing. They have like water. It's not really water, is it? It kind of looks like water in the pictures, but it's, is there rivers flowing down from those mountains or? It's mineral deposit. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm going to, it looks like they're going to clean the room here. I'm going to have to, I think I'm going to have to move. I'm going to be hoovering in a second. So it's just mineral deposits that are left by the, the, the water. I mean, the, the river, the, the, the huge rivers, the, the, the scale, I mean, maybe a kilometer across sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, Obviously, during the glacial melt, um, there's a lot of deposit left there. And that's probably what you're seeing in the photographs, yeah. Got it. Yeah, really surreal environments, yeah. But yeah, Kurdistan, you're going back, I don't know, 80 years, something like that. It's great. Culturally, it's a great experience, yeah. It's just so far behind the other the other stands? It's it's kind of similar, Okay, I suppose. Yeah, Kurdistan's different again because they um slightly different religious dress and things mm-hmm. like that. But again, people, fantastic, really welcoming. So I flew out of Osh, which is the, it's not the capital, but I flew out of Osh to come back home because it was getting too late in the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I plan to do is go back to Osh when all this virus oh, madness are, is over. Okay. Yeah, I want to go back to Osh and then ride through there, back into Kazakhstan, through China, Japan. Yeah. Are you considering doing maybe another month back in Tajikistan in the Pamirs and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, so uh, the the idea is that I want to do a full circumnavigation, ah, okay. um, but I'm always looking for the sun. So that's why I'm I'm doing it in sections. It's quite yeah. a, a lavish way of doing it. I appreciate that. It's not everybody's thing, but I just want to plot a route around the planet. I want to enjoy doing it. Yeah, basically. Fair and this is this is this comes back to the age thing again. I want to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I don't need to prove anything to anybody. So yeah. So yeah, back to Osh. So you flew from Osh to Australia. Oh, I guess you. Went to Australia yeah. next, right? I did. How, how I, I know it's kind of not so bad. Where it's an hour forty-five now, but anyways, not to spend too much time on Australia, and New Zealand. I don't want to not do them justice. No, no, understand. Yeah, what I would say about Australia is yeah. I arrived in Cairns. Uh, now, can you imagine the cultural difference? I'd spent five months uh, in Muslim countries, slightly different. Uh, you say the Shiite, and uh, so slightly different practices but mm-hmm. nevertheless the ladies are in their head scarves etc so by the end of that five months and this goes back to what i said about how i approach people by the end of the five months i saw the eyes of these women and i didn't see the head scarves i didn't see any of that it yeah. was just natural beautiful experience and because how i found it easier to engage with mm-hmm. the women when i first arrived i thought i'm not supposed to talk to the women i'm not supposed to it was silly really so i, I come from that environment arriving cairns and the ladies are barely wearing any clothes and I whoa and then I could use my credit card to buy anything imagine <laughs> from, from from a dollar to anywhere and you just tap your card and okay I did that back in the UK we have got technology like that but going from having to drive 500 kilometers to get money out mm-hmm. in Tajikistan to this situation where yeah you could buy anything and it's I went crazy and that's why I put weight on I, I was ex-bendict 
<laughs> there were eating so much, so many eggs and bacon. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I kind of put a bit of weight back on. Riding through the north part from uh, from Cairns down to Brisbane is tough because you've got 100k between towns. The drivers really don't want you there. They're really quite aggressive. The most aggressive drivers I've experienced oh, really? on all trip, to be honest. But the beaches are beautiful. And when you stop and chat with the people, the people are beautiful as well. Really nice. The highlight really for Australia, uh, I won't go on too much about it, is that I've had people that have followed the blog for about, you know, over a year. And, and I got an invite to go and stay with them in, in Brisbane. Um, so five people in total, five couples Oh wow! in, in Brisbane and, um, and Sydney. And that was the most amazing time. So although I'd stayed in countries, uh, people's houses in Turkey and, and places like that, here I find myself with people that I could talk. I could talk openly about the journey. Yeah. So to be able to talk about the journey, and it, I, I, I'm talking, thinking, "Oh my God, this is me! What an amazing journey I'm having!" <laughs> you know, you, you just kind of take it for granted. It just becomes normal. So yes, rather special. That's amazing. And you get further south. I had to get a bus because of the the bushfires which right. is the first time that I've had to, I've had to cheat if you like I would like to cycle everywhere mm-hmm. so yeah I got a, a bus from Sydney to Melbourne but I still managed to pick up uh, throat infection from the from the smoke oh, and wow. I carried that for about 6 weeks so that really impacted the cycling through mm-hmm. Tasmania and uh, and the start of New Zealand but um yeah, uh, so from there, Tasmania was was quite tough. I met up with a, another couple of guys from England, but working uh, in China, in Beijing, mm-hmm. and they were on a holiday, so they, they hadn't sort of scheduled any breaks or anything like that. So they were just riding quite a lot of kilometres every day, and then yeah, I, I kind of got tired, and I got to, after finishing there, went to New Zealand, got to Christchurch, had a couple of days rest, and then which is a really bad thing to do because your body just says, oh, fine, okay, then I'm going to switch off. Yeah, which it did for five days. But yeah, New Zealand's beautiful. South Island particularly is very, very beautiful. It is generally enjoyable riding, but I've found myself this last couple of weeks of the mindset where I'm ready for coming home. Yeah. See the boys again. There's a lot of madness going on back home with the the virus or or, sorry, worldwide. And I don't want to get any bad news on the way from home. I've had that's happened two or three times now and it's really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. So I just feel as though I should go home. Weather the storm and then the intention is to head off to to Canada, uh, America, probably spend five or six months riding across mm-hmm. across there. Has New Zealand been affected much by the coronavirus? Or I haven't heard much about it in the news. You don't know when you're, when you're cycling day to day, but um, as I'm trying to get a plane, I'm actually getting a plane tomorrow out. Mm-hmm. So as I'm talking to the, the, the lady in the car hire place, listening to the radio, yes, it's a big deal, but they're dealing with it really, really well here. The, yeah. All the places you stay at, they're disinfecting all the handles and, and worktops and things like that on a, on a sort of three times a day, I think the government is suggesting. They're really keeping on top of it. They've, got, they've had 30 cases here and they've all been tourists that have carrying the virus. So I think as of today, they've stopped the residents of New Zealand from leaving. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, they're, they're ahead of the game. They're, they're, you know, they're benefiting yeah. from the, the experiences of other countries have been through. So, And as you well know, because you were considering going to Canada right away or sooner, um, Canada has now more or less closed down their borders, except to the U- Americans. Yeah. We're still letting Americans in for some reason. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe... Maybe the reason we're letting Americans in is because they're letting us in because um, we have our March break right now for school and a lot of people had already booked holidays and stuff. So I think they, they kind of kept the borders open between the two countries for that uh-huh. reason. Yeah. I predict they're going to close yeah. down more. They're going to, there's going to, they're going to tighten them up again more, maybe by Sunday. Yeah. 
I think it's inevitable. So even here, I guess they're going to lock down, send people home from work and, and mm-hmm. things like that. Certainly the, the um, people have, I've spoken to that work here have been told they can work from home or yeah that's or what we're, that's what we're at for now the schools I'm a teacher so we have schools yeah. shut down for yeah. two extra weeks but I predict it'll go longer my wife's yeah, working yeah. from home lots of companies have laid off staff which is unfortunate the Canadian government is dumping 87 billion dollars into this for making money <laughs> to give money to people that are losing their jobs or to tie them over and yeah I guess they're doing what they can some of the feedback I've got from people um, when I posted about my, you know, I, I had this decision to make whether to stay here or go home. A lot of people said, oh, look, you're living the dream, stay where you're at, etc. But it's not as simple as that. You know, mm-hmm. I want to be at home with family under these circumstances. So there you go. And I think you've read this morning my motives for, for going home as well, quite mm-hmm. strong. So the flight that I had scheduled would go through LA and it was the last outgoing flight from LA to the UK for this season. Oh, wow. So uh, nervous that that was on the 29th, uh, I've actually had it brought forward to tomorrow, which is the 21st, because the circumstances change from day to day. As I'm looking on the Absolutely. internet, I'm going between page and page. The pages are being updated as I'm reading them. So, uh, yeah. So hopefully when I get to the airport tomorrow, I get to fly home. I'm going to go into lockdown when I get home. I don't know exactly how I'm going to do that, but I'm going to get out of London as quick as I can, which is where my son's based, and he says it's not, not too clever, and find somewhere to to rest up for a few days before mm-hmm. going home. I, my mum's, I don't want to say her age, <laughs> yeah. but uh, she's, at, she's at risk, basically. Yeah, she's yeah, at higher risk than, yeah. than a lot of folks. So, so, and I don't want to create any problems there. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay, I think a week or maybe two, depending on what advice I'm giving when I land. Yeah. And then we'll see. Yeah, well, you got to do what you got to do and you got to be careful and um, it is what it is, right? Yeah. To be honest, I I thought life would just carry on as normal here, but listening to people and um, that are staying here longer term, they're going to get locked down mm-hmm. in a hostel or somewhere. So, and you're looking at a couple of months, I guess. Yeah. If you look at the airlines, American Airlines, their their plans are up until you know mid May or something like that. No no flights. My wife and I were talking about this the other day. We we you know we moved back to Canada in June last year, and she said, "Wow, well, I'm so glad we moved to Canada because." Not that we don't like. We love Malaysia. We we really yeah. enjoyed our time in Cambodia. But you don't want to be stuck in Cambodia if there's a pandemic going on because their medical system <laughs> no. is not going to be able to cope. No. And even to go to a grocery store. Here you can go to a grocery store and there could be nobody around you. But in Cambodia, you're never going to go to a grocery store and find nobody else in the aisles. You're always going to have somebody yeah. possibly contaminating you or vice versa. I've got friends in uh, in around the, around the Philippines area cyclists that I'd met mm-hmm. they're now locked down as of yesterday by a nice beach you know beautiful scenery <laughs> and stuff so that, so <laughs> that's pretty shocking for them but they've got free accommodation because the guy said look these, these are not your circumstances you but I don't want to be locked down here no uh, I'd rather be locked down at home so well Ian it has been a wonderful talk is there anything hey, else you. you want to add before we end this I think uh, we've kind of talked about the a lot of the big points of uh, your tour and I hope yeah yeah that through your talk that like anybody who is in their, you know, 50s and they're no longer 30 or 20 and they're thinking like, can I do a yeah. tour that they see that it is possible. Yeah. So I, I want to mention that I'm, I'm writing a book about this whole process, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be a book that says I went from this hotel to that hotel. It's not going to be chronological. It's going to be about the personal experiences and how I changed and things like that. And maybe that's something that's coming from my age as well, maybe because I appreciate mm-hmm. it so much. 
I'm thoroughly enjoying that writing. Really well, I'm, I'm that. assuming it won't be chronological, just like your geographical direction <laughs> has not been linear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it looks like I've made it up. <laughs> yeah. Where Where can people follow you or find more information about you if they want to to check you out? I have an account on Instagram and an account on Facebook, but Instagram limits the words. I tend to write quite a bit. So Facebook is where, where I do most of the writing. Uh, my Endless Summer. Excellent. And then at the World by Bike. So you've got a picture of me on the toilet. There you go. So you've got to find it just for that. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. It's not as vulgar as it sounds. <laughs> All right. Much uh, appreciate the time you've given me. And uh, safe flights tomorrow. Take precautions. Be safe. I mean, this will come out way after... Uh, you're back so yeah this will all yeah. be in hindsight but at the same time it doesn't change hey, the situation i've really enjoyed listening to your uh podcast ah, cheers, i've man. listened to the whole you know it's past so many kilometers on the road really enjoyed <laughs> it thanks very much chris no Spot problem on. cheers you and take, take care, care. bye bye thanks now bye bye I just want to thank Ian once again for taking the time to be on the bike tour adventures podcast and to share his story he is an extremely good storyteller throughout the podcast and even while editing it I was just I could vividly imagine a lot of things he was talking about so it was really really great to see I uh, wish him the best I'm sure he's back in the UK now and he's uh, doing well just waiting out the coronavirus and that hopefully soon we can all get back to kind of normal in the next episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I have a chance to speak with Luke Grenfell Shaw while he's temporarily back in the UK due to the coronavirus putting on pause his Bristol to Beijing bike tour. Fundraising for a variety of cancer-related charities, Luke has already surpassed his expectations and has now set new goals and aspirations. Tune in to check it out. I want to end my show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I receive from you regularly. It really motivates me to keep going with this project and to share people's amazing stories. If you have comments or questions, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or go to www.biketouradventures.com and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, and my new touring tips page, which is slowly getting created. I'll also be integrating the Touring Talk podcast episodes into the touring tips section so you can listen to or read on whatever topics you like. If you're enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can also become one of my show supporters by going to www.patreon.com slash biketouradventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. Much appreciated and keep on pedaling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.